Well, if you're joining us today, we have been working our way through the letter to the Ephesians as a preaching series. But in light of the special occasion of this covenantal baptism that we all just witnessed together today, we're going to consider the value and importance of baptism in the Christian life. And so we'll take a pause from our series in the letter to the Ephesians and we'll find our text, our scripture passage today from Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 through 15. And upon reading the word of God, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and in that way, invite you to respond, saying thanks be to God. And so, let us pause and give our full attention, our heart's attention, to the reading of God's holy and infallible word. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Loved ones, this is the word of the Lord. Well, let us pray and ask for God's blessing as we consider it. Well, gracious Father, you have spoken in various times and in various ways to your people, your covenant people in the past, but in these last days, in your Son, the incarnate word. And so we pray that you will now open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that word in the power of the Spirit. And we pray that this same Spirit will also open the hearts of its hearers assembled here today to receive your holy gospel and write on their hearts your holy law, even as you have promised. This we ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, loved ones, I chose this passage before us as our text to consider because of the correlation that we find here in the middle of the passage that Paul makes between circumcision in the Old Testament, the sign and seal of the covenant that God made with Abraham, that covenant of grace, and that correlation with the new sign and seal of the covenant of grace in the New Testament era, which is baptism. There is a correlation, a connection here, and to understand why we baptize children of believers, it's absolutely necessary that you see how baptism and circumcision overlap, so to speak, and are connected and united in the person and work of Christ. But more than that, more than just a baptism text in itself, this passage before us is all about identity. It shows us the great value and significance of our baptism as it relates to our identity in 
life, how you see yourself, changes the way you live. And baptism speaks about our identity and who we are. And basically, there are only two ways, really, uh, in this life about getting to or arriving at your identity. On the first uh, example, you can either strive to discover and invent yourself to find your so-called authentic self, which is, if we're honest, hard and confusing work that never fully satisfies. And that's the postmodern way, we could say, what's very popular today. Or you can receive an identity from others, like your parents or the culture that you were brought up in. In this second option, it's easier, it's more straightforward, but it can seem, and it does seem to some, as a bit disingenuous or inauthentic. And that is the more traditional way. But there is, I think, a third way, the way of the gospel as far as how we find our identity. It is communicated to us, as we just witnessed, through the waters of our baptism. How so? Through baptism, God is giving the recipient an identity. But it also comes with a call to embrace the promises with a personal, genuine faith. So to every child or person baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, God is saying, in effect, two things. I am your God, you are my child, and now discover and find your true self in me. Embrace the promises that I have declared over you in your baptism. You see, in baptism, God is the one who is talking to us, and we are to listen and respond in faith. You know, so often Christians today, they have baptism in their mind turned upside down. They think baptism is primarily our way of communicating to God and to the world, a testimony uh, from us, where they are on the giving side, giving to God and giving to others, and God is on the receiving side, receiving their testimony. But that's turned upside down. In reality, we find what the Bible teaches is that baptism is God's way of communicating to us. God is on the giving side, and we are on the receiving side, God is saying something to us and to the world about our water baptism. God is saying, this is my own. This little one belongs to me. God is setting us apart from the world and declaring something about us in Christ. And so, for example, with little Samantha today, who was baptized, she has received an identity from God by virtue of the covenant of grace in the word of God. She is now considered holy by God. Paul says so much in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, set apart from the world. And she also belongs to the visible body of Christ, the church, here on earth. But also Sam, Sammy has received with it the call to respond with a personal faith. The invitation and the command to embrace the realities of those promises, which is the fullness of Christ. And so today, as we examine this text, I, I want to plead with your hearts, to plead with you. I want you to find and discover your full identity by showing you the fullness of Christ. But first, we find that Paul warns us about the hollow identities that exist in this world. And those will be our three points. First, the hollow identities. Second, the fullness of Christ. And lastly, our full 
identity in Christ. So first, hollow identities, empty identities. And we find that in verse 2-8. Look again at me in verse 8 where Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. So what is Paul here warning the Christians in Colossae about these Colossians? What is he warning them against? Well, in their day, religious syncretism was popular. So, in a sense, it was popular to have a kind of potluck style of religious beliefs or a buffet where the person would go out into the world and choose for themselves, pick and choose whatever beliefs that kind of fit their fancy, that, and then they'd mesh them together, blend them together to have a personalized religious viewpoint and experience in life. And this was the age, the old age kind of spirituality that existed in ancient Greece. But Paul is saying here that if an idea, a belief, is not in accord with Christ, the reality of who he is and what he has done, if it does not line up with the truth of Jesus, then it is ultimately hollow and deceitful. And he says, do not be fooled by what is out there. And this is still relevant to us today. Why? Because our culture is really not that different. New Age spirituality today is on the rise. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've seen this kind of rise in popularity of New Age beliefs. But it's not really new, is it? Just like in Paul's day, people today pick and choose all kinds of random religious beliefs and blend them into a uniquely personalized, inconsistent creed of chaos. That's what it is at the end of the day. An inconsistent creed of chaos. For example, a recent Pew research analysis indicates the following things, that many people today believe that spiritual, spiritual energy is located in physical things, such as mountains, trees, or crystals. New Age belief. There's a growing belief in reincarnation, that is, that people will be reborn again into this world. And people are more and more dabbling in astrology by referring to the zodiac signs, for example, to talk about their personalities and how they go about life and relate to different things. These are popular beliefs that are on the rise in our culture. And why are people drawn to such religious syncretism, this blending of all kinds of ideas? What is the appeal? Well, over time, I think this is what's happened. Over time, little by little, our culture has slowly chipped away at society's Judeo-Christian foundation that we were once built upon as a culture. We no longer have a shared Christian worldview with our neighbors. We are, by default now, a secular culture, not a sacred one. But secularism itself is vacuous. It is a vacuum. The logical conclusion of secularism is that all of life is meaningless unless or until we assign meaning to it. And that is the new basis of our society. And what is the result of this? Well, it leaves us feeling empty because nothing has meaning in itself. Life has no purpose, and there is no greater reality to which we are all connected. It is just a vacuum of meaninglessness. As the saying goes, nature abhors a vacuum. Vacuums want to be filled. 
And so we find that people are hungry for meaning and significance in our secular age. In a secular culture, people are grasping as much as they can for religious experiences of transcendence and all different kinds of beliefs to try and fill that void. But here, God's Word is saying that the world is selling us a fullness that is empty. It's like one of those massive toy eggs. Have you seen them on YouTube or at Target, those massive toy eggs that are wrapped in plastic? Uh, They're fascinating. They have shiny, colorful packages on them, uh, all different kinds of pictures, and they promise to children who see them on YouTube or in the store, they promise the children that wonderful things are inside that, that egg, that mystery egg, surprises that will fascinate the mind. And maybe, maybe your child convinced you to buy one of those eggs, and then you spent an ungodly amount of money for it, took it home, your child cracked it open, and what was inside? It was full of cheap plastic toys, right? That they played with for a few minutes, and then they were bored with them. You see, religious syncretism, it might feel nice, but those ideas and beliefs, they have no weight to them. They have no meaning and significance. They have no solid basis to stand upon. As Paul says here, they are based on human tradition, or we could translate it in a different way in our current moment. They are based on trending hearsay or popular opinion, and that's all. They are shifting sand. And the world offers a fullness that is here today and gone tomorrow, but by contrast, Paul is saying that real fullness is found in Christ. Jesus offers you fullness that is here today, there tomorrow, and with you forevermore, because as Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. If the world's fullness comes in bright, fancy packaging, but is hollow on the inside, void of value, well, the gospel is the exact opposite of that. How so? The fullness of Christ is like bars of gold delivered in a brown paper bag. What do I mean? (laughs) The fullness of God came in time and in space, observable to eyewitnesses in our humble humanity wrapped and enveloped in human flesh, bones, blood, and all. There was the deity, God himself. Paul says in verse 9, In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. God came in our humanity. The one true God does not need to bedazzle the packaging of his fullness because God knows that what he is giving us is not cheap plastic toys. When the Father sent His Son, He was giving us the very best gift of all, His very own fullness, mediated by His Son and delivered to us personally by His Holy Spirit. And this is why, at the end of the day, the option between the fullness that the world gives us and wants to sell to us, which is a hollow identity, and on the other hand, the fullness which is in Christ, well, the logical and fulfilling option is Christ and Him alone. And so let's unpack now what that fullness of Christ means. And our second point, the fullness of Christ. What is the fullness of Christ that Paul is speaking about? What are the gifts that are wrapped up in the fullness of Christ that are promised to us in our baptism and given to us when we embrace those promises by faith? Well, Paul lays it out for us in the next few verses in 10 through 15. We'll go through those together. 
The first, the fullness of Christ, means full power and authority. Paul says in verse 10, Christ is the head over every power and authority. What does this mean? It means that Jesus is in full control over all things. As R.C. Sproul, pastor theologian, said, there is not one single maverick molecule in all the universe. Nothing is outside of his control. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in human history is also the authoritative basis for all of our beliefs. He is the authority on which we stand. And so by baptism, we are united to him who is in control of all things and working all things together for our good. The one who holds all things together, our authority, our comfort, our truth. Also, the fullness of Christ, as we continue, means the full renovation of our hearts. Paul says this in verses 11 through 12, where he says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And here we see that correlation that I was speaking about earlier between circumcision and baptism. That both the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament and the sign of baptism in the New Testament are pointing to the same reality, the same reality, the same thing signified. What are they pointing to? The blessing of full renovation, full regeneration in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. They symbolize the cutting off of our old self, taking that away, the burying of our old self into death, and the purification of our new self internally to rise with Christ in newness of life. Both signs are pointing to that great reality. Not only that, circumcision and baptism also points to the one who secured that blessing for us. How? By becoming a curse for us on the cross. What do I mean? Well, in verse 11, if you look at it again, the NIV translation that we're using today, it says the circumcision by Christ. But in the Greek, it gets a bit complicated. In the Greek, it literally reads the circumcision of Christ. And so one theologian, J.B. Fesco, he writes this, when Paul makes reference to the circumcision of Christ, what does he have in view? The best answer is that Christ crucifixion was a circumcision. That is, he was cut off from the covenant community. He suffered the curse of the covenant for us. He was cut off, that we would be brought in. This means that on the cross, Christ was cut off from the blessings of communion with the Father. On the cross, he was accursed under the law as a rebel of the covenant who died outside of the camp in order to bring us in, now purified by his blood. And also on the cross, like the wicked generation of Noah's day, it was drowned in the flood. And like Pharaoh and his army that were crushed by the walls of water, so Christ on the cross was baptized in the floodwaters of God's judgment and crushed in our place. Both circumcision and baptism point to Christ's death in our place. Why? So that we, like Noah, and we, like Israel, can pass through the judgment of God with the assurance of his loving favor, with the assurance that we will arrive on the other side safe and secure. 
justified by faith, and so that we might receive as well the full renovation of our hearts, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So we see the fullness of Christ means the full renovation of our hearts by the one who was cut off and baptized in God's judgment for us. Also, as we move on, the fullness of Christ means full life. Paul says in verse 11, when you are dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your faith, flesh, sorry, God made you alive with Christ. We have been made alive with Christ because he is full of life. Listen to how John in his gospel at the beginning uh, speaks of Christ, where he says, in the beginning was the Word, that is Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John here, he's making a simple argument that because Jesus is the creator of all things, therefore he is full of life, because he has given life to all things. In our lives, we've experienced places and events where it seems that we're in the midst of life that's growing and blossoming and blooming right before us. Times where we walk through a garden or we're going on a hike in a beautiful landscape and we see life around us, maybe at springtime, or as we are in uh, the maternity hall in a hospital and holding our baby, and we, we can smell the breath of new life from our baby. In those rare moments, we get a glimpse of life as it should be. In those moments, God reminds us that life is good in itself. It is true, and it is beautiful. And friends, Jesus is full of life. He is bursting at the seams with life, so to speak. You want a full life, look to him who is full of life. Now, maybe when you hear that Jesus is full of life, maybe you think, well, I am not worthy of such life. Jesus is too good, and I am full of evil. Jesus is too true, and I am full of lies. Jesus is too beautiful, and I am full of ugly sins. Well, in a sense, you are right. If Jesus is only full of life, then we have no hope because we are not worthy of such life. We have spurned that life by our rebellion and our sins. But John, he said more than that. He tells us that Jesus is also full of grace and truth. Not only is he full of life, he is also overflowing with grace and truth. That means that his grace is true and his truth is gracious. He does not lie to you when he says that your sins are forgiven. It is true. And so, too, the fullness of Christ means, as Paul says, the full forgiveness of all our sins. Look again at verses 13 through 14. He says that he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. You see, he made true on his promises of grace, and the proof was Christ there, nailed to the cross, canceling our debt of sin with God by shedding his own blood in our place, in the place of you. 
And he has taken it away, all of your sin. And he has cast it into the sea of his love. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, he has a remarkable illustration for the full love of God. The full love of God. He says it like this. I'm trying to imagine this, right? This is, this is mind-boggling. God's love is an ocean with no shores and no bottom, which surface has been entirely removed. Did your mind just explode? It's massive. It's vast, unimaginable. When you try to imagine such an ocean of love, you see that there is no end or beginning to the height, depth, and width of God's full love, which is for you in Christ. If you think of the vast, vacuous space that is our universe, if you try and imagine that, not even that could contain the full volume of God's love for you in Christ. It is bigger. It is greater. But again, you might be saying, I am dirty. My thoughts are dirty. My hands are dirty. My heart is dirty. God will not let a filthy sinner like me into his presence. His love can't be for someone like me. I would not let a dog come into my house after rolling in the mud, much less will God let me in, as filthy as I am. Well, Christian, friend, behold the clean hands of Jesus nailed to the tree for you. He never sinned, and yet there the clean one died to make you clean. And as surely as the water of your baptism washes away dirt from your skin, so has the blood of Jesus washed away all of your dirty sins before the Father. So trust in the fullness of his forgiveness for sinners like you and like me. Full forgiveness. Lastly, Paul says that the fullness of Christ means the full victory over all forces of darkness. And he says that in verse 15, saying, having disarmed the powers and authorities, referring to spiritual powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We all face in life opposition, dark challenges that that come before us in our road. We face obstacles that get in our way of good progress in the Lord. And these obstacles can be a whole host of things. We could spend a lot of time talking about them. But here, in brief and in summary, the Bible says that there are also spiritual forces at play that seek to blind us to the truth and bind us in deceit. But Paul says here that by our union with Christ, we already have victory over all spiritual oppression. He has triumphed over them through his death on the cross. This does not mean that you will not be assaulted and attacked and face opposition in life, but rather, when attacked, the Spirit of God is with you. Christ has already won the decisive victory for you, and by the blood of Jesus, the Father guarantees the ultimate victory over sin, death, and the devil on the last day. And in a way, that is a summary of sorts of the book of Revelation, the blessed triumph of the Lamb, the victory that we have by faith in Christ. And so we've tried to unpack the fullness of Christ here from this text, the full power and authority of Christ, the full renovation of our hearts that he gives us, the full life for us, the full forgiveness of sins, the full victory over oppression. But let it be said that we have only scratched the tiny little surface of the iceberg of the fullness of Christ. He is much bigger, much greater, like his love. There are no shores, bottoms, or surfaces to his fullness. For as Paul says here, in him all the fullness of God 
dwells bodily. And this leads us to our last and brief point, our full identity in Christ. Look back at verse 10. Verse 10, where Paul says, In Christ you have been brought to fullness. Other translations say here, you have been filled in him. See, the sign and seal of baptism points to this promised reality, the fullness of Christ for you, your baptism waters. They point to his full forgiveness, his full renewing power, his full victory over sin, death, and the devil for you. And if you have been baptized into the visible church, then Christ in all his fullness is yours for the taking if you only embrace him with a personal, genuine faith. When a baptized person comes to believe in the promises of their baptism, that faith is evidence that the Holy Spirit has worked a spiritual circumcision of their heart, has worked the Spirit's baptism in their inner being. And so, at the moment of true faith and repentance, the waters of baptism become more than just a sign pointing to a reality. They become a sacred seal of the fullness of Christ that is yours by faith. And this is what God is communicating to us, again, by water baptism. He is communicating to us His very own Son, His fullness for us, for you. And so, again, children of the covenant, you who have been baptized, Have you personally embraced the promises of God for you by faith? Have you laid a hold of Christ by faith for yourself? Don't wait any longer. If you're ready to embrace Christ by faith, then talk to your parents or to me and let's get you prepared to make a profession of faith, to lay a hold personally of those promises that God has declared to you in your baptism. Don't wait any longer. The fullness of Christ is for you. Now, friends, why do you still push Christ away? Let me ask you at the close, where else can you find such fullness? Who else can give you such life and grace and confidence and strength? Stop striving to discover and invent yourself over and over again in this endless cycle that is never fulfilling Receive instead Christ Jesus the Lord and his fullness. The promise is laid out before you on the table. Accept the terms of his offer. Stop searching for something to fill that void in your life with those hollow identities and instead rest in the fullness of Jesus. And when you do, the fullness of Christ will come rushing in to fill that void in your heart. He will give you peace that surpasses understanding and he will give you a humble confidence in all of life and the guarantee of his undying love both now and forevermore. And when you do, as you do, and thereafter, continue to walk in him. Continue to live out your baptism rooted and built up in him with thankful hearts, day by day, dying to self and rising to newness of life, receiving and delighting in the promises that are for you. Yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we are overwhelmed and amazed by your goodness and grace and mercy that you have shown us in Christ, the fullness that we receive in him. It is truly beyond what we can imagine and fathom. And we thank you for a small glimpse of it this morning from this passage inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
Lord, it is our heart's desire that you would impress this truth upon us, that you would give us that faith, that repentance to embrace Jesus and our identity in him and receive all the fullness of God through the Son and by the Spirit. Make this true for all of us, from the oldest here to the youngest. In time, give us true faith in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand, loved ones, in response to God's word and sing a song of application. 288, we come, O Christ, to you. 288.